Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Nobel laureate Toni Morrison observed, I know the world is bruised and bleeding, and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it is also critical to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom. Like art, just a few months before the author died last August, a wonderful documentary was released about her life and work, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. Today, we'll listen back to my conversation with the filmmaker, Timothy Greenfield Sanders. The film won this year's NAACP Image Award for Best Documentary. Also, a look at a biography of the artist David Hockney in novel form. And find out how to get primed for painting your own artwork at home. We'll begin on a lighter note. Sketchworks is serious about being funny. That's what they say. Julie Scher is the co-owner and producer of Sketchworks. She joins us now. Julie, welcome to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Would you tell us about the history of Sketchworks? Absolutely. Sketchworks was created by a group of people in 2001, several different people who came together thinking, you know, there are very many comedy writers in Atlanta and they wanted to develop something where they could, you know, create, write, produce, and put on shows as opposed to improv where sketch is, you know, rehearsed and put up on stage. So it's a lot different. And so at the time there weren't any groups like that. So this group of writers got together and they developed Sketchworks. So there are about five or six producers at the time. Over time, as it developed, a lot of different people came and went. It's really an an important type of uh, thing for us because we're one of the original sketch groups. So what I'm saying is over the years, so many different groups have come out of this. More people have been wanting to develop 
more of a sketch type of approach as opposed to the improv. So back in 2001, having been the first ones, I think that was really important for us. And then um, we started developing education programs. Um, I came on personally in 2005. And when I started, I took the classes. And then from there, we developed and formed the syllabus, made it so that people understood how to flesh out a character and really develop that. And it's based on the realness of being an actor. So it's not just to sit there and make people laugh and go for the laugh, you know, it's really just being an actor, knowing how to act and react and be, again, very grounded in your characters. Then we developed a lot of writing teams from that. A lot of people commended us for it. And so from there, we developed a kids program. <laughs> At first, we weren't even sure really what the age group would look like, but I think we have figured it out that uh, 8 to 12 really works well. Um, that's when I start to develop a sense of humor and really know what that is. And so that's when we implemented that. And from there, it's really grown. Good. During the month of June, you are offering virtual kids summer camps. What are some skills kids will acquire during these camps or can hope to acquire? Well, number one, they're learning the basics of sketch comedy and acting, you know, just what it all means. And again, really just the root of all of it is how to be an actor. They will write their own sketches and solo pieces. So solo character pieces, again, fleshing out a character and whether they do something where it's just on its own or within an actual scene, um, they'll develop those character building skills. All of this, by the way, is something where we do a lot of improv games and exercises to find these characters. So improv absolutely is 100% very important for the kids to find these characters. So that's pretty much in a nutshell what we do and what they'll learn. Going a step further though, we're also, given that we're in this digital world, we're gonna be doing basics of video editing. I think that's going to be a really important thing for us this summer, oh, yeah. especially. Yeah, I can only imagine the challenges of trying to do and teach comedy in the virtual realm. Though we've been living virtually now for three months, does that seem less daunting now, or do you still face tremendous challenges with trying to teach online? Definitely. I think it definitely is still a challenge. But given, like you said, I think we've had some time to really wrap our heads around this as everyone else in the world and trying to reformat and change gears. Given these circumstances, it's just been different. But of course, again, we can keep our humor about it. And yes, being a theater definitely presents its own kind of challenges by not being there in person. But Maria Liatis, who's the education director, she just took this on like a champ and really was very thoughtful in the approach and how we can do this virtually. I mean, to really keep the kids and teens engaged. It's definitely different, but ultimately the way that she has kind of turned this around and made it in a way that we can really teach those kids and be as effective as possible, she's done an amazing job. And our team of instructors, have so much energy and they are just full of life and smart and have worked with kids and teens over the years. And so we just feel very ready. I see that the kids camp will 
culminate in a special event. What can you tell us about it? They're going to be creating their own videos. So they're going to learn all about how to really do comedy video editing. So all the different platforms that are out there, like YouTube, YouTube being the main one. This will be something where they're on camera presence and just how to use the software to edit together a piece where that comedy can come through. So, so it's not just within the acting itself. Will all their videos be edited together for this final event, or will they live as individual sketch videos? Yeah, individual, because here's the thing, there's two separate groups. Yeah, so it'll be the 8 to 12 group and then the teen group. So two separate material that they'll be using. How does teaching kids comedy benefit them now and later in life? Well, number one, with kids, they're just innately funny. I feel like they already have such a great sense of humor. They can tend to keep things lighter than adults do. They don't take themselves as seriously. So that really helps and lends itself to the comedic arena. So already you've got that. They've got a tremendous amount of energy, more than us adults. And they're just so ready. They're like, you know, like sponges. Um, they're just ready to eat that up. And they love, love, love to laugh. And so that alone is refreshing and easy to work with. Now, having said that, yes, they're still learning and maturing. And although some people, uh, some kids have trouble with forming or, write, or just even writing, their writing skills could be a little struggle, but in a way, that's what's helping them too. So with our writing instructor, John Babcock, he is so good and so patient with them. And that can even help further their and enhance their writing skills and how to look at things in a different way. Growing up, you just will keep that as a part of you and it will help to shape who you are as a person and trying to keep humor as a part of your life. And it's just so important that we have humor and laughter in our lives. It's therapeutic and it's needed. You are also offering virtual summer classes for adults. In what ways do those classes differ from the kids' classes? Well, right now, currently, one of the things about this virtual world, we sort of had um, already had experience with doing it because our writing classes, we were already in development for that. We had already had online classes. So we have writers from all over the world. Um, we have a writer from India who has joined our writing team. So we already had a handle on how that would work. And so for the adults and for our writing classes themselves, the writing class number one and number two, that was already in a way streamlined. And we knew how to handle that. As far as the acting, definitely some challenges there for sure. But we went to our team of instructors and said, look, we need to start, you know, we're creative people. We, we can think of other ways to do this that can be effective and that people will want to do something online. So we just recently had a class, it was uh, one of our instructors developed a thing called Uta Hagen, Six Steps. And it was these six questions that had to do with pertaining to character development. So it was very, a very specific type of work so that wasn't just, hey, let's just write, get some scripts written and we'll put on a show, which is ordinarily what we do. So we just you know, took a different approach. Would you explain for those who may not be familiar with her, what Uta Hagen did and her influence? Yes. Well, Uta Hagen was an amazing acting instructor and uh, has written books and it's very much based on the actor. 
So it's not, it's not based in comedy necessarily, but that was a part of some of her teachings where it had to be broken down into, well, how do you really develop a character? How do you flesh out the character, their backstory, where they come from, what's the, what's the conflict in their lives? So because the same information pertains to the comedy realm as it does in just a really a serious straight play. So this is why we wanted to kind of break it down and make it more specific to that. You know, again, taking a different angle on it. And Uwe Hagen has just been very famous acting instructor. It's just another, one other approaches, like there are other different acting approaches with there's Meisner type of acting technique. And so for her, this is just another way to breaking it down. Julie Scher is the co-owner and producer at Sketchworks Comedy. Their first virtual sketch summer camp session begins today and runs through the 12th. The second session will be June 15th through 19th. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Art, like religion shouldn't exclude anyone. It should be universal. So writes Catherine Cousset in her book, Life of David Hockney, a novel. The working class art student from the north of England was successful from the very outset of his career. Hockney fell in love with the U.S., settled in California, and is closely associated with sunny depictions of Los Angeles. The 82-year-old Hockney is gay and explored the nature of gay love in his portraits as far back as 1961. When I spoke with the author Catherine Cousset last summer, she began with the origins of the novel. Uh, first, I wrote this almost by chance. Uh, I was commissioned a personal essay on his work uh, because there was a large retrospective of his work in London and in Paris and in New York. I was supposed to write this in French, of course, because I'm a French novelist. Um, and I started reading about him, uh, his biography. There is a very large biography and also autobiographical books by him that he didn't write because David Hockney is not a writer, he's a painter, but he recorded them and then they were printed, published one in 1975 and one in 1993. And these two books, mostly the first one, um, are full of anecdotes about his childhood and his youth. And I started reading them and I loved 
the person. I loved the person, I loved his voice, I heard him, and in my mind, even though I had never met him and I knew almost nothing about him, he became like a fiction character. And um, it, you've written 12 or 13 <laughs> novels. So the idea of um, his life being so ripe with character and plot, I guess, just jumped out at you from those scholarly biographies and uh, the personal. Well, he actually wrote an autobiography. He wasn't even 40. Yeah, I didn't write it. It was recorded and transcribed oh. because it doesn't write. But it's David Hockney by David Hockney. But yes, I wrote uh, 13 novels, which are published in French. And most of my novels are about very personal subjects. You know, I'm inspired by people close to me that I know very well and with whom I have an emotional connection. I wrote a novel about my mother, uh, that I love my mother, I adore her, but the book is called Family Hatred. <laughs> uh, I wrote a novel about my mother-in-law who emigrated from Romania in 1975. And more recently, I wrote a novel about a friend of mine, a very, very close friend of mine, French, who emigrated to the States when he was 23 and studied at Columbia. And this young man who was bright and very brilliant and funny and you know, full of life, so joyful, surrounded with friends, committed suicide at the age of 39. Mm. And I tried, I wrote a novel trying to understand what led him to such a desperate act and what was on his mind. So when I started writing, you know, when I wrote the book on David Hockney, people told me, oh, this is so different from what you did until now because you don't know David Hockney and it's your first book about an artist. How come? And I want to answer, no, it's really the same process in the, in the continuity. Yes, I do not know David Hockney, but in a way I have an emotional connection to him because through the books I read about him, I got the feeling I knew him. I loved him as an artist. I loved his freedom and I loved his sense of humor. The man is so funny and I kind of identified with him. And I suppose that writing about his life allowed me to write about art, what it is to be an artist, and what it is to be a writer. What was it that you identified with so immediately? His freedom. You know, the man, I mean, he was born uh, in a poor family in an industrial town in England. And he became, as you just mentioned, a very, very uh, famous artist whose painting was just sold for $99 million. But he really uh, be he became a figurative artist when everybody was abstract. Uh, he also became a militant homosexual painter uh, in his 30s when homosexuality was still a crime in England. He moved to the States, you know, uh, he, discovered, he dec discovered New York in 1961 when he was uh, 24 years old, and that was a revelation to him. He loved the United States. He loved New York, and then he loved California, and he became the painter of California. But even though he's so well-known as this, you know, uh, painter of California, he's also always free to paint new things. He, he's one of the first artists who used technology, he used the fax machine. Yes, he used you the Xerox machine. He, he used the iPad, and everybody around him was telling, "He's crazy. This is not art." But the man is always trying new things. I remember um, the first time 
I interviewed Annie Leibovitz maybe uh-huh. 12 years ago. 12, and um, I, I was very cautious about asking her her thoughts on digital camera digital cameras because you know the relationship between a photographer and and the dark room and developing the print and film uh-huh. was is so sacred intimate yes, sacred, sacred indeed <laughs> and she said she loved digital cameras and then she was using them already uh-huh. um, David Hockney not being a technophobe and and being so eager to embrace the iPhone well first it was the polaroid and 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 then later the iPhone the facts it it says so much about his spirit and i think you bring that out in the book when you write about even in his maturity he never had any uh, resistance to changing the medium he went from acrylics to watercolor uh-huh. to charcoal I, I, and i could see where in the form of a, a novel and with this work unfolding as fiction that as the novelist you were completely um, coming to terms with his life in his actual life. Yes. So, you know, I'm very interested to understand what is going on through his mind. And in a way, you know, people ask me, but it's a biography because everything I write is accurate. I did a lot of research. I read everything. I cannot invent the life of a man who is alive. (laughs) So I wouldn't be correct, right? But... What interests me is not to write about David Hockney, the famous painter. What I'm writing about is David, the artist, at the moment of creation. What did he love about L.A.? Actually, I I don't know if you'd feel put on the spot. I, I marked a place that I think is wonderfully descriptive descriptive and I wondered if you would read this. Of course. But Los Angeles lived up to his dreams. He had immediately fallen in love with that megalopolis that combined American energy and Mediterranean heat. Everything was a marvel. The eight-lane highways, the immensity of the space, the light, the ocean, the vast beaches, the brilliant colors of the vegetation under the sun, the white villas with flat roofs, the glass buildings, the geometric lines, the houses of the stars built in artificial styles, the blending of modernity and nature, and the ease of life there. No social classes, no labels, no traditions, complications, elitism. Everyone was equal and free, The bars were open until two in the morning, the perfect time if you wanted to work the next day. Mm. Pleasure without guilt, a blue sky, heat, and the ocean, and pools glimmering under the sun. So, of course, this is his vision, right? Because as we know, they 
when I when I write everyone is equal there, this is what he felt because he came from very elitist England and also he was a homosexual, which he couldn't be openly in England, but he could be openly a gay man in, in LA. But we know that LA at the time was no no place is a place of equality. We know that. But this was his vision as as a British man. Catherine, the book in effect feels like a tour through a gallery of Hockney's life. And I was hoping you, in just the few minutes we have left, if you would talk about your writing process. Did you first decide upon which paintings to include and then form the narrative? No. Uh, it's really like, my, like in my other books. I am trying to inhabit the mind of David Hockney. You know, I really need the emotional connection to him. I need the empathy. And I was able to write the book because I felt that empathy, even though I don't know him. I, f I really felt him. So I only tried to write what happens to him through time. You know, he's, this, he's born in that poor family, becomes this uh, very, very brilliant young student, you know, accepted in the best uh, uh, school of uh, painting in England. Then he moves to, to California. He becomes this very famous painter. But then he also has big crises. He's not sure he's a good painter. He's not Picasso. He realizes he's not Picasso. He has a, a, a painting he worked on for two years, Santa Monica Boulevard, and he throws it away. And he's really criticized by great art critics. He's called superficial, by frivolous. By the English critics, mm, not so um, much the Americans. No, the American ones. Those, you know, Hilton Kramer was in New York. He, he wrote the worst article about David Hockney in 1978, saying it was like a bourgeois painter, you know, a conventional painter. And even though David Hockney, you know, pretended he didn't care, I think he cared. Because the question I was asking myself is, who decides you are a great artist? Who, decide, who decides you are a great novelist? Is your faith in yourself enough? You know, do you, or is it enough if people love to buy your work? If you sell like 200,000 copies of a book, but the best literary critic says your work is not good, who is right? Well, and that's, what, that's a question I'm asking in my novel, too. Who well, decides you are an artist? I think that um, one of the strengths of the novel is the way in which you reveal how much meaning is within those sunny landscapes and the portraits. I wish we had more time, but... Just just one thing, I'm, uh, it's a very happy book, and I want to say I'm happy, so happy to be talking tonight in Mar Margaret Mitchell's house, because of course, Gone with the Wind was a favorite novel of my teenage years, so I'm just so excited, I can't tell you. Catherine Cousset's book is titled Life of David Hockney, a novel. Stay-at-home projects like cooking, knitting, and working with puzzles have become a popular way to spend time during the coronavirus pandemic. Painting is another activity to add to the list. Primed Fine Arts is an Atlanta-based company that provides all the materials and instructions one needs to paint their very own work of art. 
WABE's Kevin Rinker sat down with the founders of Primed, Alex Luce and Andy Ash. Their conversation began with Andy talking about how they started the business. So Alex and I met in college. She was getting her graduate degree and I was getting my undergraduate degree. Over the course of the next few years, we kind of like lost touch and then reconnected in Atlanta. And we decided that one night over sushi, (laughs) we were just kind of spitballing ideas because we were both wanting to kind of, I don't know, pave our own way. And we wanted to do something that played to our strengths and was something that we cared about. And so we hatched the idea of the painting kits because I was an art major and she is the business uh, marketing kind of person. So we just kind of came up with it and slowly started building on it. And now it is a real company. And what made you want to share your interest and enjoyment of painting with people who aren't necessarily experienced at it? One of my favorite things is teaching people to love painting. I was naturally interested and naturally talented, I guess, at painting. So I pursued it. But I know that a lot of people get frustrated very quickly with painting. And it's also, it's a myth that if you're not naturally gifted, that you can't paint because anyone can paint. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be personal expression. And so I just wanted to make that available to people, but it seems to work better in the kit form because having a guideline or kind of a, a path laid out before you makes it more approachable. We give you a blank canvas to make it yourself, but we want you to do what you want on the canvas. Yeah. Andy and I are both very, interested in the arts I guess you could say we met singing in a choir at UGA so we kind of bonded over music at first music and art and painting bring so much to both of our lives and I've heard from so many of my friends that you know they really like art but they are adults now and it's too late and they never learned and we just want to make make it easier for people who maybe didn't really try this as much as they could have when they were kids and are kind of wanting to get into it later, um, make it easier for them and show them that they can do it and that they will have fun and that they can get better. So right now, if you go to your website, you can look through all the different options of, of what to paint. There's cows, there's birds, there's sunsets, there's flowers, and they just pick a box, right? And what do they get when the box gets to them? What's, what's in there? What should they expect? So the kits come with everything you need to paint at home. So that is an eight by 10 canvas for everyone, two different brushes, all the paints that you need. It's all heavy bodied acrylic paint and then a brochure of instructions to follow. Uh, We also have videos that you can follow on the website if that's easier for you to follow along. But we want it to be everything that you need to get started. Yeah, I think that, and also a paint palette. Oh, a paint palette, yeah. Um, So it literally is the idea that you just open your box and get right to work. We wanted to make it as easy as possible. How do you decide what will make a good painting that's accessible to people who may not have painted much or at all? And also, can you describe the style of painting that someone will be doing when they're using one of your kits? So my process for choosing a design is 
I basically come up with what I think might be fun. And sometimes we try to do a seasonal one and sometimes they're just something that I think would be fun. And I come up with the simplest way to have the most depth and like different techniques used and just to give them a full experience while they paint. And I just try to come up with the easiest way to get the point across. We did start this company focusing on impressionism. I thought as an art teacher, impressionism is a very forgiving style. There's a lot that's open to interpretation and it's not as if you're trying to draw a dog and then in the end it doesn't look like a dog so then you're frustrated. We wanted to make it something where people thought it was fun, it was loose enough that they could still make it their own and make it look good. From there, we branched out into, now we have some that focus more on modernism and, and I hope to in the future embrace other styles too. As far as choosing the picture, it's really just kind of what we like. I like really happy, colorful things. So that's what I try to paint and I try to make it very accessible. We do level them. We level them levels one, two, and three right now. So levels one are supposed to be for people who've never, ever even picked up a paintbrush, like very, very basic, and then moving up into level three, where maybe it requires a little bit more drawing ability. I'll say too, so Andy is an art teacher. We teach at the same school. I teach history and she teaches art. And she has so much experience with young kids painting. And she is really great at coming up with paintings and images that look really cool and fun and like something that you would want to paint, but always thinking about it as, you know, we want somebody who is not very confident maybe to be able to do it and have it look good and be happy with what it looks like at the end. And were you holding in-person paint parties before the pandemic or was the idea always just to be kind of providing the tools and the instructional videos and that kind of thing and, and not hosting something per se. The idea of the kits has always been that they are standalone and you get them and you can do them at home, but we have done events and we've done a couple events around Atlanta before the pandemic, just to have a fun thing to do and outreach and, you know, get to know more people around Atlanta. Yeah, they're, they're just two different animals. The initial idea was for you to be able to relax in the comfort of your own home, pour yourself a glass of wine and get to work on your creative outlet. But what we found was that people already knew of the Sips and Strokes concept. So it was kind of like an ease into it for them to come to a painting event and kind of see what we're all about. And then they would feel more comfortable taking one home to work on by themselves later. And has the pandemic changed the way you operate? Has it changed what you've seen as far as demand goes? I know things like puzzles have been flying off the shelves and other kind of stay at home fun projects as opposed to getting your, your housework done <laughs> to spend your time during the pandemic. Have, have you seen any, any differences? Yes, for sure. We have seen um, a lot more demand compared to last year. Uh, I would say the biggest logistical change is that, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I didn't want to leave my house at all. So we had to get our stamps.com subscription. (laughs) We're shipping everything just like from our homes instead of having to go out to the post office. But we've definitely seen an increase in 
in demand. And we've had some previous clients just have their own painting parties, which was really cool to see where they would just get either family around the country or friends around the country to all just go order their own box. And then they would send us pictures of all of their, all of their paintings at the end. And have you heard from anyone who, who said like, this has been great for me to have this outlet during the pandemic while I'm stuck at home? Yeah, it's been really encouraging because I guess because people have the time now and they're wanting to reach out to you, we, I feel like we've gotten more feedback than ever because people are taking the time to say, Hey, we really enjoyed this or Hey, like my, you know, niece just did one, look at her work. So that's been really, really cool. We sold a lot We're you know, it's a good gift item. So we sold a lot over the holidays last year and we've gotten a lot of emails and Instagram DMS and everything from people that got them at, you know, last December. And now, you know, in March and April, they were like, we finally had the time to do this. And this is the perfect quarantine activity. And also just emails from people saying that it's nice to have an hour or two where you're not thinking about the news. You're not scared of what you're seeing. You're not anxious or stressed out. You're just focusing on something fun. I think there are a number of people out there, and I include myself in this, who think painting is sort of off limits or something only true artists can do or can do well. What's your response to those who are interested but nervous about being a bad painter or it's just something that, that's too inaccessible? Well, there are no bad painters, first of all. Um, <laughs> and that's, I mean, we really started the company for them. Andy and I met in a choir. I've sung my whole life. I consider myself musical and artistic, but I was never a painter. And I always loved art, but I never painted myself. And really just being friends with Andy and watching her teach our students how to paint and watching her go through this process, I saw firsthand how accessible it really is. I think that someone who maybe has an interest, I think mm -hmm. all it takes is the desire to want to do it. You just have to be able to sit down and kind of focus for a little bit. And if, if you want to learn how to paint, you will, you can. It's not something that you're born with or not born with. It's something that you learn like every other skill. So if someone is saying to themselves, gosh, today is the day that I start painting, then grab a kit and sit down and do it. You will get better, you'll get better faster than you think you will, and you'll have fun. I mean, it's, it's a, what have you got to lose, you know? So I think I would just say to them, go for it. Andy, Ash, and Alex Luce talking with WABE's Kevin Rinker about their company, Primed Fine Arts. You can find a link to their website at wabe.org slash citylights. I know the world is bruised and bleeding, and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it is also critical to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos contains information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom like art. The Nobel laureate in literature, Toni Morrison, explored black identity in America throughout her writing career, and in particular, the often devastating burdens of black women. Toni Morrison died in August of 2019 at the age of 88. 
just two months earlier, a wonderful documentary was released. Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. I spoke with the director, Timothy Greenfield Sanders, when the film came out. Let's listen back to that conversation now. I first met uh, Toni in 1981, uh, 38 years ago. She walked into my East Village studio. I was a young photographer, and I was doing her for the cover of the Soho News, and she was smoking a pipe. And we became friends at that moment, really. Uh, I remember someone said to me the other day, what, did, what do you remember from that? And I said, well, it's so long ago, but I remember how confident she was hmm. that, that often as a photographer, you know, what you do is you, you read your subject the minute they walk in the room. You're kind of sensing, are they nervous? And there's an anxiety to being photographed. And Tony didn't have any of that. She was just ready to go and easy and... I remember that very well. And that confidence comes through in the film, but not as arrogance or self-importance. She just rather matter-of-factly mentions at one point in the movie, well, I write well, or I'm a good (laughs) writer. And I thought, yeah, I would say so. And that must be why... On camera, she seems so at ease and and as though she's completely enjoying being your subject because you go back nearly 40 years. I guess you achieve that trust. That's exactly right. And Tony enjoyed the interviews. I think, you know, I think for her, the issue when I first asked her to do this film and she's very private. She doesn't do biographies, doesn't, hasn't written an autobiography, but she somehow allowed me to do this because I think she felt I could, I could. And we shot those at her house and we set it up as a studio there, the studio look of my portraiture, but she enjoyed it so much and it was a chance for her to really tell her story. I loved her remarks about the Nobel Prize ceremony and that the Swedes really know how to throw a party. <laughs> You're not expecting it in the film because she's she's very serious and she says, I like the Nobel. And you're thinking, what does that mean? And it's just because they know how to throw a party. I love it. (laughs) Early in the film, she explains why reading and writing were acts of defiance or reading and writing was an act of defiance in her family that her grandparents weren't allowed to read. It was against the law. What effect did knowing that have upon her? We open the film with that because Tony reminds us how much it means to be able to read and to be able to learn and to be educated and how much that was kept from African Americans in those days, particularly her, even, even as far back as her great-grandfather. It's it's a stunning thing to realize, really. You don't imagine that, but it was a way to control people. And even in her house, the importance of books from her parents was on display early on to her. I think she she understood how much it meant that she was reading a lot, and they they encouraged her. I remember not in the film, but her fa- she was telling me about her father really encouraged her and made her feel like she was special. 
Mm. And that was, a, you know, that's what you want from a parent. Indeed. Some reviewers said Toni Morrison was limiting herself in only writing about black people. Would you talk about her response to that criticism? She mentions James Baldwin talking about the little white man sitting on his shoulder. I thought that was a great part of the film. She does. Tony, you know, one of her big themes and something that we confront very early in the film is the the, the white male gaze, which is that everything is white-centric. Everything comes from a point of view of whiteness. And she talks about the little white man that's sitting on your shoulder looking at everything you do, judging you you know, critiquing you, controlling you. And she says, once you knock him off, you're free. And and that was what she did. And so she didn't write from a point of view of, of four whites. She wrote, you know, from a very, very specific point of view of African-Americans at a time when nobody was really doing that. Hmm. I often go back to this quote from Lorraine Hansberry because I love it so much. She once said, in response to something similar, she said, the universal is in the specific. Mm, I would have thought, yeah, and I would have thought, you know, a decade and a half later that Toni Morrison wouldn't have received that kind of criticism, but but she did. I think that there's always, you know, disapproval of black women, particularly in America. In the film we show when she wins the Nobel, and this is such an exciting, incredible moment for everyone. And the next day, the Washington Post has this nasty article with these awful, awful comments about her work and trying to marginalize her and make her you know, not important. It's politically correct, things like that. One of them even says, I hope she learns to write better books. Oh, as if this wasn't <laughs> a profound impact on American literature and, you know, a badge of honor for us. Well, yes, so much yes. for them. Oprah Winfrey says in the film that with her words on the page, Toni Morrison teaches readers to take pain and learn to love through it. She's such an uplifting figure and a voice of truth in our society. Timothy, in what ways did her body of work influence how you made this documentary? I'm a reader of Tony, but more importantly, I think I wanted the world to see all the sides of Toni Morrison. I wasn't going to make a film critiquing each book and going through each book. I think that would be, wouldn't be what I, it's really not what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do is show how she was an editor at Random House and brought to the table many, many, many important authors who were marginalized, people like Toni Cade Bambara, and she put a book out with Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali. I mean, she did amazing things in a very white building. The Random House building in those days was quite white male. And, you know, Tony was a single mother at the same time, raising two boys. And she was teaching and, and all of this while she was writing her books. So it's just an astounding level of competence and talent on, on every level that, that she, she demonstrated. 
you also feature her editor, Robert Gottlieb, who's revered in publishing, who's revered among literati. What does he reveal about Tony as an editor? She talks about when she started out at uh, Random House and they discovered that she had written a book, <laughs> The Bluest Eye, <laughs> published by a different publisher. They decided they needed to bring her into the company and they put her at Knopf because that was the sort of high-end literary side and she was working what they called Little Random uh, as an editor. And they assigned Robert Gottlieb to her. They became very close friends. He edited all of her books but one. And, you know, he's one of the greatest editors of all time. He works with Robert Caro, did all the, the Path to Power books and the Lyndon Johnson and, you know, remarkable, remarkable work. Uh, so we wanted Gottlieb to, to talk to us. And unfortunately, things get left on the cutting room floor. We have a wonderful sequence for the DVD about commas. <laughs> how they fought over commas, <laughs> Tony and Robert Gottlieb. So uh, she'd give him one, and he'd, you know, she'd say, I don't want this one, but I'll give you one over here. Oh, how funny. Well, beautiful artwork appears in the film, works by Jacob Lawrence and Romir Bearden, to name two. I know that you are an accomplished visual artist and fine art photographer yourself. Would you tell us about the imagery you selected to complement the dialogue in the film? You know, as as a white man making a film about a black woman, I, I tried to bring in as much uh, from the African-American community as possible. And one of the ways, aside from the opening by Micheline Thomas, and the, the incredible music, you know, from Catherine Bostick was to bring in fine art artists, uh, painters, to bring their work into it. You know, uh, Elizabeth Catlett and Charles White and uh, Lorna Simpson, Faith Ringgold, Carrie James Marshall. All of these people, some are friends of mine because I was a photographer of the art world for many years. And we, what we did here, we, I've never seen in a documentary, we really are cutting to paintings not so much to illustrate, but to give you a feeling of what's going on and what's being said. And it was very powerful. We we started to do it and, and thought it would work and then got very into it. <laughs> what painting could we put here? What painting there? But it's it's an unusual part of the film. Jacob Lawrence, for example, we used his great migration paintings, which, which are masterpieces, to illustrate kind of Tony's family leaving Alabama and moving to Ohio. It's very effective, really breathtaking. Would you share the story about Marlon Brando? <laughs> she, Tony uh, became friends with Marlon Brando because he would call her up and read back passages of her books to her and talk about what he thinks it means. <laughs> At, at three in the morning. At, at, at three in the morning, exactly. At three in the morning. And she said, I couldn't really hang up on him, but it was, you know, he would critique it. And uh, <laughs> it's just too funny. Chutzpah, I would say. It's absolute chutzpah, yes. I was hoping finally that you would talk about the people whom you chose to interview for the documentary, kind of like a who's who of the second half of the 20th century on into the 21st. Why did you choose the folks you did? 
Well, I worked with Tony. Uh, you know, she never watched the film while we were making it. She didn't see it till it was over, and she did her interviews, and that was really the extent of her uh, participation. Other than we, I brought a very long list to her, and she pulled out her red editor's pencil <laughs> and <laughs> crossed off most of it, which was good because it w- enabled us to kind of settle on twelve people. I don't like to invite someone to sit for a film and then not use the footage. Mm-hmm. You know, we got Hilton Ailes and Russell Banks and Angela Davis and uh, Paula Giddings and uh, Farrah Griffin, who's a Toni Morrison scholar, and Fran Lebowitz, her very close friend for years, Sonia Sanchez, an amazing woman uh, who was the first to really teach Tony in the schools. And, of course, Oprah. Uh, so, uh, and a couple others, Richard Daniel Poor, I'm trying to remember, Bob Gottlieb, right? Walter Mosley, wonderful Walter yes. Mosley. Russell Banks, David Carrasco. Uh, that was the group we assembled. And, you know, I shot Tony direct to camera. So she's looking at you, talking to you. And the others are shot off camera so <laughs> that they're not as important in the frame. And I, I had never seen that in a film, but I thought, you know, I hope it could work because if it doesn't work, you're stuck with it. But it wonder, it was wonderful because Tony is a great storyteller. And it also makes you feel like she's connecting to you. Timothy Greenfield Sanders wrote and directed Tony Morrison, The Pieces I Am. The film won this year's NAACP Image Award for Best Documentary. It's streaming now on multiple platforms. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with the acclaimed interdisciplinary artist Fahamu Peku. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. City Lights is now a podcast. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.